0: Open your Bibles, please, with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. And if you are a guest and you need a copy of Scripture, we have a a copy under that seat in front of you, as Pastor Michael said. And you'll find Matthew 18 as the first book in the New Testament. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And then we're looking at chapter 18. And you do have, uh, as you can tell, a pretty detailed handout for this morning's study as we press through our series entitled... um, the pursuit of of the sheep uh, by the shepherd, the shepherd's reach. And uh, we're going to make some good time here this morning, so hopefully the notes will keep you up to speed with me. As you're turning to Matthew 18, you might have heard the story of the guy who was in his doorway, just really struggling with his washing machine. Trying to move it, and he's stuck in his doorway, and Someone on the sidewalk, a passerby, saw his struggle, so he immediately walked up to that doorway and and started to help that guy. And this struggle went on for ten minutes. I mean, it was quite a struggle with these two guys in this washing machine in that doorway. Then during these ten minutes, there was sweat on the forehead. There were smashed fingers, as you can imagine. There were red faces and grunts. And then finally... Inside the apartment, this passerby said to the owner, I thought we'd never get that thing inside. And the owner said, what do you mean inside? I was trying to get it outside. Poor passerby, right? You ever get yourself in the middle of something and you're not quite sure what you're supposed to do? You ever find yourself in a situation like that? I'm sure you have. All of us have. And as a church family, you might be feeling that at this point as we return back to Matthew chapter 18, and we, st- we, we are studying what some have called the moment of truth for every local church. We're studying the topic called church discipline. And we find ourselves looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, but it's in a context, a moving context of the whole chapter of Matthew 18 now we saw last in our last study the words church and discipline don't seem to go together but we're seeing that there might be a, it might be wise to give this a different name I mean instead of church discipline we now know that we could call this Christian love instead of church discipline we could call this family care Instead of church discipline, we could just call it real Christianity. We could call it mutual commitment. But what I'm recommending for this series, which you can tell by the, the title of the series, is that we refer to this in our heart at the very least as the shepherd's reach. The shepherd's reach. Because this whole section of Matthew 18 launches out of verses 12 through 14. Remember these verses? What do you think, Jesus says? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Who's the little ones? That's, that's us. Childlike disciples. Who's the shepherd here? It's Jesus. What is He sh- saying here? He's saying when one of my own, one of, one, a true believer in me, when they wander off in sin and they're not coming back on their own, then what happens is I go after them to rescue them. And that rescue... That the shepherd conducts for the sheep ultimately becomes an occasion for the shepherd's rejoicing as he rescues one of his own. That's why I think as we now come into verse 15, we refer to church discipline as the shepherd's reach. It takes the hard edges off. It takes our hesitancy away because what we're seeing unfold in verses 15, especially today in verses 15 through 18 this morning, we are seeing, listen, the gentle reach, the sure extension of rescue from the shepherd through his church. That's what we're seeing here. We've, in our last study on this, we asked and answered some very key questions. We answered, why, why do we study this topic in Matthew 18? And, and obviously, the, the short answer is because it's in the Bible. It's, in the, it's the next passage we've answered the question why is it so rare in churches today even churches like ours and we answered that question with with answers such as well some churches don't punctuate the importance of church membership uh, some churches don't have a boldness that 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 is necessary for a rescue there's several reasons and that sermon is is available online if you would like to review it in full but i do want to remind you of something else we We answered. We answered this question. This is so important as we press into these three verses this morning. We answered this question: When it comes to church discipline or the shepherd's reach, what is it that's at stake? Why is this so important? And if we only answer that with one answer—the rescue of the sheep—or—or—or just the the testimony of the church—we're going to miss so many important layers in this. And I argued in our last study from Scripture that there are five realities at stake when it comes to the shepherd's reach or church discipline. It's, first of all, the glory of God. Secondly, the collective testimony of the church. Thirdly, the spreading of sin from that unrepentant sinner to others. Number four, the correction of the sinner. That is one thing that's at stake, but not the only thing. And number five the obedience of the church. Will the church obey when the head of the church says, you must do this? There's a lot at stake. So, as we press into this this morning, some of us may still be wondering or asking, what in the world are we supposed to be doing? Think of those two guys in the doorway with the washing machine. Now, come back to us as a church. We're understanding the shepherd's reach. We're we're seeing that this is an amazing display of love. How are we supposed to do this? It's not so much that we need to be convinced anymore of the reality of this and the presence in Scripture and the expectation of it, but how do we do this? What's the how-to? And I want to suggest to you that the biblical blueprint is crystal clear. The blueprint for the process is in verses 15-15 through 18 of Matthew chapter 18. And I want to read those verses with you right now. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I am going to stop reading there at this point. It's in those verses we have a crystal clear blueprint, the how-to of church discipline. This isn't left up to our creativity. This isn't left up to our convenience. It's spelled out for us right here in four steps. And I want you to marvel afresh as you see these four steps and marvel at the shepherd and his type of love that he shows to us. Four steps. Step number one. We'll call this confrontation confrontation it's in verse 15 again look at the verse if your brother sins go and show him uh, his fault in private and if he listens to you you have won your brother I'm calling this one confrontation but it's here that I want to be and and have to be very candid with you pastorally There are a couple reminders I need to give to you before you get a little trigger happy. Okay? A couple of reminders. The first reminder, I'm going to say, why you go. You need to have clarity as to why you would go to a brother or a sister. And the answer is simply this, according to this verse. It's because of unrepentant sin. That's the only reason. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the the verse says it, verse 15. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. But that's not the only clue that this is dealing with unrepentant sin right here in this context. Now, we can go to other passages, as we will this morning, and see it as well. But we're just barely out of verses 12 to 14. And just remember the picture our Lord intends to land on his disciples' minds. He, he, the shepherd, has a hundred sheep, one strays, and doesn't come back on its own. Now, sheep are going to bounce here and there, in and out of the flock, as the flock moves under the leadership of the shepherd. Uh, they're going to stay pretty tightly compacted, and we have shepherds in our church here that can, that can say that they find security in staying clumped, in many cases. But every once in a while, one will bounce off the group and not, and not come back and will eventually go off on its own. It's not an occasional mistake we're looking at here with the sheep or in verse 15. This is someone who embarks on a harmful trajectory and doesn't have any indication that they're coming back. Keep the picture of the sheep here. Why do we go to a brother or sister who's struggling in sin? It's because they're doing so in an unrepentant way. It says here, if your brother sins, this is, a, this is a, a, a Greek word that just means, you know what it means, it means to miss the mark, it means in God's mind you are, you are departing from a way of righteousness into a way of unrighteousness, inconsistent with God and his character and his expectations. Now I do, we have a spray of different translations on a normal Sunday in here, and that's beautiful, that's great. But I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It says in verse 15, if your brother sins. Some of your translations have a little footnote there. Some of your translations have another statement there, a little phrase. And it reads something like this in your footnote or in your translation that's different than mine. It says, if your brother sins against you. Now I want to talk to you about that little phrase, against you. More of the modern translations will just contain a footnote there. And that's honestly admitting those two words very well could be part of the original autographs, the original manuscript here in the Greek. Uh, But they also could have been, there's indication it might have been added in for clarification by those who copied the scriptures before us, trying to help the reader. And uh, nonetheless, it's preserved in some of the younger translations. More recent, if you will. Not in time here in the West, but in the strain of church history. So what are we going to do with that? I don't think it affects the, 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 the flow of this text either way. It doesn't change it at all. Because even if it says, if we leave it sh- the shorter reading, which I think is the right reading, if your brother sins, don't forget who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples in Peter's living room in Capernaum. And who do you think is going to be the first one to pipe up with a question when Jesus takes a breath? It's going to be Peter. It's his living room. It's his habit. And how did Peter hear verse 15? Well, you can tell. Look at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brothers sin? And what are the next two words? Against me. And we know those words are part of the original manuscripts. For sure. So, You can have fun studying that on your own. I I leave it out of verse 15, but include it in the context because of how Peter heard it. But it doesn't change the responsibility here. But you say, why are you making such a big deal of that? Because sadly, some of God's people look at that phrase and the fact that it probably isn't in verse 15 in the original manuscripts, and they say, therefore if I know that my brother or sister is going off in an unrepentant, sinful trajectory with no plans on returning, if that sin wasn't against me personally, I don't have to go to them. And therefore they let the sheep wander. And, and I just got to say... You might be thinking you found a loophole here, not to do that awkward conversation with someone that you call brother or sister, but I assure you in the New Testament that loophole does not exist. It doesn't exist in this text. It doesn't exist in texts like Galatians 6:1, brother. If a brother be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual pursue him. Rescue them. I see in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 admonish or pursue and and confront. Admonish the unruly. Wherever you go in the New Testament, you and I don't have a loophole. So when you go, be sure you understand it's for unrepentant sin. Sin that someone is is making no indication they they are repenting of and returning. It's one thing to bump out and make mistakes and find your way back or or the Spirit corrects you and you come back but if they're on a a dangerous trajectory that's what we're talking about. It's confrontation. That's why you go but I also want to give you a second reminder it's when you go. When you go in verse 15 sense it should it's communicating to us that this should be a common reality. That word if there is a conditional clause that you're gonna see Throughout this text, it's, 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 a, it's a clause that doesn't just say it might happen. It's when it happens. And it will probably happen often. You know what that's saying? Verse 15 is saying, we as a church family, as a community of grace, stand poised to pull our lives up close to each other for mutual love, mutual encouragement, and listen, mutual rescue. That phrase, when you go, is, is meaning to communicate that this is going to be a common reality. You might have to come to me today. I might have to come to you tomorrow. We're looking out for each other. It's And by the way, it says, if your brother sins, and that next word is go, that's, that's, a, that's a word, hupago. That, that means don't wait. This is a... This is a present imperative, active. This means no matter how many times it's necessary, you don't just have a willingness, you're ready to deploy in a moment's notice and even repeatedly if needed. Do you feel the weight of the verse yet? But thirdly, I want to give you this reminder before you go. Before you go. See, what do you mean by that? This is where you check your motives. What I mean by before you go is is this. Open your Bible and be sure that it is a sin against God and not, listen, a conflict with your preference. Please hear that. Open your Bible and be sure that their struggle is actually a sin against God and not a conflict with your own personal preferences. We don't do verse 15 because of a music preference or a style of church music. We don't confront with Matthew 18, verse 15 over school choices or over bumper stickers. We don't pursue, in the sense of verse 15, issues, listen carefully, of Christian liberty that differ differ from yours, no matter how strongly you hold to yours personally and I hold to mine personally. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 14, you'll read the, you'll hear these words from Paul. You'll read them, Romans 14. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he'll stand or fall, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Powerful words from Paul. The, this is not something about your personal preference to say, well, why do we go then? Why do we go? I want to give you, this is just out to the side there in the white space on your notes, three pot- possible categories. People come up with different numbers of categories. I think we can, we can stick these kind of sins, on, categorize them under three categories. First of all, you have a category of lifestyle. A category of lifestyle. You say, do you have, do you have examples of this? Yes, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul's deploying people there at Thessalonica to pursue other professing believers in Thessalonica who have stopped working and providing for their own families because they think the Lord's going to come back. And Paul has some strong words not to be idle, and they must be busy providing for their own. That's a lifestyle uh, when it comes to employment. But there's also a lifestyle when it comes to morality. An example of this would be the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul says there's a man that professes to be a believer who is having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. Okay, That's gross. He says that's what unsaved people do, yet someone in the church is doing it, and you're not confronting him. You need to go to him. He needs rescued. So those are examples of that first category, lifestyle sins. A second category would be the category of doctrine, belief. This isn't, just, this isn't a Christian liberty issue. This is gospel truth. Having to do with the deity of Jesus or the work of Jesus to secure salvation. An example of this would be Galatians 1, 8, and 9. You know these verses. If Paul says, If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel, contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. This would be doctrine. A third category, broad category, not just lifestyle, not just doctrine, but the third category would be the issue of the tongue. Factious activity. As a matter of fact, Paul will use that word, that concept in Titus chapter 3, Verses 10 through 11. Listen to these words. Reject, he's writing to the church, reject a factious person after a first and second warning. Knowing that such a person is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Just an example. I think these categories of lifestyle or belief Or dissension, factious activity, make good broad categories. I say all that to say this. When when you go, it's not about your personal preferences, it's about something that's near and dear to God. It's near and dear to the truth that He's given to us in His Word. It's not merely finding your favorite list in Scripture, listen, and staying only with that list. See, what do you mean? I, you don't have to turn there, but I mentioned a moment ago 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a short chapter. The entirety of that chapter is dealing with church discipline, and we're going to come back to it again in this message, Lord willing, this morning. But there is a list in this passage, and you're saying, well, that's, that's a church discipline chapter. That must be the only list. And I'm saying it's not. It's a list, listen, that's, that's especially pertinent to the struggles at the Corinth church. We're still instructed by this list. I want you to hear it. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. See, that should give you a clue there that he's starting with the problems in Corinth. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he or she is an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I have good friends in the ministry that limit their categories to just those issues because of 1 Corinthians 5. And I say there are other passages like the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 that are much broader, that even that list is left open-ended. It's interesting. The plethora of lists like that in the Gospels as well as in the Epistles as well as the whole of Scripture, I think we can argue, is a reminder that the real issue that we're talking about in Matthew 18 with Jesus and His church is this. It's not an issue of one item from a list that sends you. It's the issue of a professing brother or sister in Christ refusing to repent from a sinful direction they have embarked on. That's important. There's one more reminder for this first step. And it's I'll call it as you go. As you go to this brother or this sister, as you set up that coffee, as you knock on that door, as you take that walk or that hike, use your open Bible. Keep your Bible open and in play. You don't do verse 15 with a clenched fist. You don't do verse 15 in all caps. You don't do verse 15 from a distance. Think of John who signs on in two of his letters, I'd rather speak face to face to you, not in writing. That includes typing in the Greek. Just kidding. Face to face where someone... It's not just hearing your nouns and verbs. They're seeing your, your display, your expressions, you're leaning in with such affection. They're hearing your tone as not being scolding and condescending. You're using a Bible. You're open to a specific text of Scripture that has caused this concern. And you're leading with things like this. You're not saying, hi, I'll take a latte, please. You need to repent. No, I'll take the latte, obviously, but your Bible's open and say, hey, listen, I, I hope you would be just as quick to come to me on Thursday if you had a concern like this. And, and I don't want to assume that I have all the facts, but here's what I know. And I think you'd understand why I'd be concerned if that's true because Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 5 or whatever the verse is. That's how you do this. You don't wave your finger at them. You don't wag your head. But you do remember in your head Galatians 6.1, which says, consider yourself. Do this in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself. Listen, you'll never pursue a straying sheep that's involved in a sinful trajectory of their life that you're not capable of as well. It tempers you. And by the way, you say, why have the Bible open? Because you can't bring about heart conviction. You can't do that. You might have a couple degrees, you might have read a few books, but you can't reach into the heart and bring conviction. You say, yes, I can, I've done it before. Revisit that if you did that without Scripture. You didn't create conviction, you were using fear of man currency. And you intimidated, at the very least, spiritual bullied at the worst. That's not conviction. So, use your word, your copy of Scripture. It says here, go, and it says, go and, here it is, show. Go and show. You're showing them in Scripture. This is actually a judicial term of exposing, convicting. As one writer says, it's to convince by mounting evidence that a standard has been breached. You know, this is the job of Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. And guess what number two is? Reproof. That's this. Ephesians 5, 13: all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And it's the word of God, that he, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter. Four, verses 12 and 13, it's the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as a division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, listen to this, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You might be a nice person, but on your best day, you're not that good. When you go, open your Bible. And suddenly, this isn't a, what you might have had in your mind in previous generations of Christianity, where someone with veins sticking out their temples and, and sweat pouring down their forehead and wagging their finger, that is not, that is not what verse 15 is assigning. Never do that. And I just did that to you. and I'm doing it to me. This is a sweet thing. This is the touch of the shepherd. See, way back with St. Augustine, he shared these words, these sweet words dealing with this process. He says, Those sins which are committed before all must be reproved before all that all may fear. Reprove in secret those who have offended you in secret. If you alone know the guilty person, yet you desire to reprove them before others, then you are not a corrector, you are a betrayer. Wow. But, if you do it the way the shepherds prescribing, if you do it this way, there's little room for Misunderstanding and the wonderful Presbyterian commentator, William Hendrickson, who's with the Lord now, wrote this sentence, and I've always loved it. He said this about this passage in this verse. Quote, Lack of discipline is a curse for any church. It's being in a fold where there's no shepherd to pursue if you go astray. That's step one, confrontation. The rest are shorter. Step two, You say, there's a step two? Yeah. There's an operative little phrase you have here in verse 15. Or at the beginning of verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, you know what that that phrase requires? That we move to step two. And by the way, the, the present active in verse 15 means that you may have to go to this person several times to make your appeal. Not one and done by the weekend. You're appealing to them you're pouring out your soul and your love to them, pleading with them to return. If they refuse to hear that and return over a period of time, a couple weeks perhaps, depends on the nature of the sin obviously, then that's the that's the indicator that we need to go to the next phase. I'm reminded as we go to the next phase of the, an Old Testament passage of God dealing with his nation of Israel. Isaiah 65 verse 12, I called but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that which I did not delight. Hmm. What's step two? It's confrontation plus documentation. Confrontation plus documentation. Look at verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of... Of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. See so what is this? Well, I need you to note just two realities for this one now. The first question is a question: What hasn't changed from step one? Between step one and two, what hasn't changed? You should be able to tell from the title of that step. What hasn't changed is the confrontation, and as we understand it now, with all of the the pathos and the, the affection of a shepherd. What we understand is this that confrontation is in person, not through a letter. It's where they, your, your tone and your words and your body language is communicating rescue, not judgment. Your Bible is open, and your concern is over their lack of repentance, which puts them in a dangerous place spiritually. That hasn't changed. From step one, so that leads to the second question: What has changed since step one? A couple of things. It says here now you're not going alone for this next season. How long is it? Again, it depends on the on the sin. Obviously, if it's they're teaching false doctrine, we can't. We have to move pretty quickly on that because that can spread quickly. If it's immorality, we're going to move quicker because it's a public thing but i what hasn't changed when we have to come to this point is number 1 the amplification or what has changed excuse me what has changed it's the amplification of concern and now it's not just your voice there's one or two other voices joining with you in pursuing this sheep this work of rescue so the amplific- there's an amplification of concern but i want to point out something too it's not just the concern that you are showing um, to this person who is in sin. That's happening. But you understand this is also an amplification of concern that you're expressing to God. Because now it's not just you praying for your friend. It was a private matter in verse 15. But now that circle's getting a little, little wider now. Circle of knowledge. And with the circle of knowledge getting a little wider, the 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 sound is is starting to crescendo. More voices making an appeal to the person. More prayers going up to God. So what's changed? Number one, an amplification of the concern. Number two, a verification of the response. It's not just you getting a read on 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 a straying sinner. Now you've got other eyeballs on it too. Guess who's accountable in the room now? Not just the person that you're concerned about, But you're accountable now, too. And these witnesses are not just sitting on the couch facing the person with you. They're sitting on the chairs watching both of you. Is this really something that needs to go to this level? They're checking the details of the sin and the non-repentance on the one, and they're checking your tone and the content of your concern. Is this legit? This is nothing more than than what was prescribed in the law in Deuteronomy 19.15. Our Lord is quoting this. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. So what has changed? It's a growing amplification of concern. There's a verification of their response in your spirit. But number three, what has changed? It's the protection of the goer. Before he was going one-on-one, she was going one-on-one, but There's also having witnesses in the room. uh, There's an element of you yourself as the initial confronter being protected. You're being protected, as I mentioned in the above point, against your own heart that might get wrapped up in emotion and sin because of the non-repentance of the other believer. Um, But also, um, just to make sure that that other person wasn't involved in perhaps something with you prior to the initial confrontation. It's just more eyes from the body of Christ on the situation. I call it confrontation plus documentation. Now someone might ask at this point, "Well, who who should be these other two or three? who, Who gets the invite to go with the initial confronter? I have a couple suggestions for that too. First of all, the person in verse 15, if they have direct knowledge of the sin, they need to go. You know how many times someone has come to me in, in any church I've ever served in, so that puts four out on the table, where someone will say, so-and-so's in sin, I know it, I was there, I saw, I heard, or whatever, and, and this is something that they're not repentant of. It's not that they made a mistake. And I mean, they, they're just they're gone. They're, they're heading down a road that's dangerous, and, and you need to go get them. And I look at this verse and I say, well, you have to go first. You have to go first. And then I will always say this, fair fair disclosure, I will say this to you too. Right after I tell you you need to go first, I want to help you with this. But I'm also going to now, because of my love, not just for you, but for them, I'm going to hold you accountable to go. This is what we do in rescue. So it's the, person closest to it should go at first or the person with the knowledge but you say well who gets the invite in phase two I think you do need to involve church leaders at this point doesn't have to be only church leaders you might want to include someone else who has been restored themselves when they were pursued they'll have a special sensitivity and have special notes to read from a special journal if you will from their own experience as they appeal for them to repent See what happens if they don't listen to the small group? Well, the text tells us. It says again in verse 17, there's our operating phrase, if he refuses to listen to them. That's the requirement then that we go to step three. What do we call step three? Here we go. Step three is confrontation plus, I think you see where I'm going with this, documentation Plus, mobilization. You see what's happening here. It says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. You see why are we doing that? Well, it's really, step three is step two, but you're turning the volume up more. You're increasing the, the, the steady stream of prayer. It's just, an, listen, it's an amplification of love. Step one in verse 15 was an expression of the shepherd's love. Step two, that expression of love was starting to crescendo and increase. And by this point that we call mobilization, now the church is being deployed. This is the second mention of the church in the Gospel of Matthew as we've seen earlier in this series. I believe it is talking of a local assembly that our Lord would initiate on the day of Pentecost. I just want you to note two things about the local church here. Number one, this is the church bodies going. The adults in the church, those who are in covenant with each other, are being deployed here. This lives out 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, where, where Paul says, if one member of the body suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. If you're now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. This is also us obeying what Hebrews ten twenty four says. Let us consider, let us study how to provoke each other to love and to good deeds. This third step is the church body's going, but secondly, it's the church body's growing. It's the church body's growing. This is living out the wonderful words that we've studied as a church before in Ephesians 5 15 through 16 excuse me Ephesians 4 15 through 16 we are speaking the truth in love and we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself In love, we're leaving the comforts of our preferences and we're moving towards someone to rescue. I always believe that this should be at a service where most members are present. You speak in general terms. You don't give specifics of sin, especially in immoral issues. You refer to the broader category of moral failure. You refer to the broader category of... of, uh, drunkenness, theft, etc. You give a time frame in this phase. You deploy the church, say, for the next month, we need you to be approaching out of love, and you don't need to know the details, just a general category, and appeal for them to repent and express your love. And we'll reconvene as a church in one month and give the date. And then the teams are deployed. The times I've been involved with this, I can't tell you how sobering it is to the church family. And and a lot more than just that person's sin starts getting confessed. Because we see the shepherd loves his sheep like that. Not just that sheep that's gone astray, but me and my struggles. And it's a sweet, sweet culture of a church that matures in this. You say, is it possible that they still won't learn they still won't repent, even after the crescendo of love, the increase of appeals, is it still possible? And the answer is yes. Because it says in the middle of verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That brings us to step four, one word now, excommunication. It's very sobering. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's not a scarlet A, but you can move around town conveniently. It's, it's a serious. I have a question for you. What was Matthew's trade before Jesus made him his disciple full-time? A tax collector. He was a Jewish tax collector. In some ways, made it even worse for him. He was rejected by his Jewish fellow men because he collected and even extorted money from his his fellow Jews for the sake of Rome. Yeah, Matthew knew all about what it meant to be outside of the boundaries of fellowship and favor. Maybe that's why it's preserved this way in the Gospel that bears his name. My definition of excommunication is this when it comes to church discipline. It's to be treated consistently with the way they are living. To be treated consistently with the way they are living. In short, it means to be removed from the protection and giftedness of the local church. From that body that for the past month or so has been appealing to them with an increasing crescendo and in number. Affirming their love And the sinning brother or professing brother or sister says, I don't want that. I am not going to repent. Lutheran commentator from a previous generation, solid Christian, evangelical, Lensky, on so many points, made this statement that I really appreciate. He said, if all the brotherly effort of the church fail, then the church must consider the sinner self." expelled and must take due note of the fact and act consistently with that. Though we say the word excommunication we are acknowledging and and treating them in the reality of the fact that they have self-expelled themselves. Because Christians, true Christians, will at some point come to a place of repentance. I believe it's this fact that John even addresses in 1 John 2.19 he says we no longer. Um, he says they went out from among us because they were not really of us. If they would have been of us, they would have continued with us. John writes. This is the church is saying we no longer recognize you as an unbeliever. We notice we didn't say they aren't a believer. We can't say that. We don't know the heart. But if we are saying this, we no longer recognize you as a believer because you are not responding to God's word and repenting in short we can't vouch for your regeneration we're not saying it's not true but we don't see it for now it's been it could be 2 months there's been appeals to you to repent out of love not scolding and there's no sign of life if you read through 1 Corinthians 5 we're almost out of time you have to do that 1 Corinthians 5 you can't miss the mention of complete separation, the concept of separation. There's an inside of the church. Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians 5 of those within the church and those who are outside the church, who are put outside, and we'll even call that the domain of Satan. This is not his domain in here. He's saying there's an in and there's an out. And at this point, they need to be placed outside of the fellowship. Not merely take their name off the roster, not merely take away their vote. Not merely you can't come to the Lord's table. Not merely, as I heard one church, we have a back row reserved for you if you're undisciplined. It's creative. No, if those five things are at stake, including the spreading of sin that we talked about, they are not allowed to be here to let their yeast permeate the whole lump. Even Martin Luther said, By his sin, the sinner thus makes himself one who is not a sheep, nor wants to be sought, but intends to be completely lost. Some people will say back, they'll say, Well, wait, we, we let other sinners in. We let people, what, what did we do? We say we're into the gospel and sharing the gospel and inviting people to church. We, we let sinners into church, we even invite them. Why wouldn't we let this professing brother or sister not be with those sinners in our gathering? Well, number one, I'd answer that with the five things that are at stake that we've already studied, but I would also say this. Note this about a professing brother or sister who won't repent after weeks and months of appeals. We have to agree that he or she is not looking for the answer. They were a professing believer, but they refused to act like it with no concern for the glory of God, the testimony of the church, the spreading of sin, the obedience of the church, or their own correction. This is a command. And it gets real personal here in chapter 18, verse 17. It goes to a singular you. It started as a singular you in verse 15, and it ends here. There's a lot of discussion about that. I think it's because he's talking to Peter. And and, and Peter's going to hear this. Um, But he's also talking to the responsibility of each individual disciple. And some would even say, and I think that there can be truth to this too, now that we've mentioned the church, the you is a corporate you, used as a singular entity, that local assembly, there's one local assembly that's having to deal with this. And he's addressing that local assembly. This is an imperative. You say, well, I don't know what the duty is, though. If someone's excommunicated, what's my duty? What's my stance towards them? Oh, here's where you still have to be so careful. Number one, you be ready to forgive them. You be ready to forgive them. You want to know what the next passage is? And actually, it makes up the bulk of this whole chapter 18 on what it means to forgive someone who's sinned against you. One of you approached me in the last few weeks, and you remember this series from when I first came. We're doing it again now because it's been a while, but also we have to have this conversation with our Constitution and bylaws very soon. We're rewriting this section. But someone else came to me and said, you know what, I think you should keep going and do the forgiveness material after because that's going to talk and speak to our community together and how we restore. That's a great suggestion. When someone is excommunicated, you don't write them off and forget about them and block their access to your Instagram. You are ready to forgive them. Number two, you are ready to evangelize them. You see them at Kroger. You say, "I love you. I miss you." And I pray that if, if you're if you're not regenerated, that God will rescue you. Number three, be committed to praying for them. You're ready to forgive. This keeps you from stomping out of their lives. You're ready to forgive, you're ready to evangelize, but you can be committed to prayer. Second Timothy two, twenty four to twenty six, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Those are the four steps. We don't have to get creative. A couple of observations as I prepare to close in prayer. Number one, did you notice the circle of knowledge starts small and grows larger? That will also be true for the circle of confession. If they repent, if they respond one-on-one, it ends there unless, obviously, there's lingering fruit that will need to be explained. And even then, that won't be discipline. It'll be awareness and a reminder that repentance had happened. That could be a little baby, as an example. Because this whole f- process, you're protecting the offender. Should they repent, you don't want as many ears that could know of the details. to know it. you don't want that the circle of knowledge as well as a circle of confession goes from small to larger number two the volume of Christ-like concerns starts quiet and grows louder there is a crescendo effect that's part of the spiritual jolt it's a it starts small and then it crescendos and then at step four suddenly there's silence within the context of the church not in our interactions in the community but there's a clear a clear statement and a, cre- a clear feel that that body that was reaching out to me, something has changed, and I'm cold now, and I'm, I'm missing that concern. Number three, the process doesn't end with step four. If someone has gone through four steps of discipline, it's still active, it's still on, we're still praying because their last chapter hasn't been written. Number four, this entire process is a two-way assault on pride, isn't it? It's an assault on my pride, and it's it's an assault on the pride of the offender. It's very humbling. But Proverbs eighteen twelve says before our humility goes before honor. And just remember, the disciples at the beginning of chapter eighteen had just been described or debating over who's the greatest. (laughs) Number five, the flow of this chapter radiates the shepherd's love. Never read these verses separated from verses 12 to 14, or you will miss it, I promise. It's a shepherd's love. Number six, local churches that don't obey are, and I'm going to use a biblical word from this chapter, offenses. Offenses. And I, in here, I just remember Matthew 18, six, uh, verse 6, verse uh, 6. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If I'm not pursuing a lost sheep, am I not encouraging their their departure? And number 7, church leaders who don't obey are hirelings. And here I use the word of our Lord in John 10:11 through 14 he says I'm the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his sheep his life for the sheep but he who is a hired hand is not a shepherd he's not the owner of the sheep and that hired hand sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them he flees because he's only my my translation an employee And he's not concerned about the sheep. So, what is that? I just preached to you verses 15 to 17. It explained verses 12 to 14. This is how much you're loved by your shepherd. That he would deploy his people, his body, to rescue you. Sometimes you'll be the sheep that strayed. Sometimes you'll be in the search party. What a blessing to see the love of the shepherd and to be an extension of his body and love. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we could come and and study this. And we just wish to keep verses 12 to 14 so close to verses 15 through 17 because it's a beautiful passage of love and rescue and a sobering passage about the problem of sin. and the danger of not being pursued. So I pray your spirit will work in our hearts as we contemplate this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.